Well, friends, we are in the book of 1 Timothy, so go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 5. Uh, there should be some Bibles that are available in some of the seats in front of you there, um, either to your left or right or right in front of you. So if you don't have one, go ahead and grab that. If you honestly don't have one at home, even keep it. All right, that's our gift to you. We want you to be in the Word of God, how significant and important it is. Robin talked about that when she was describing some of the women's studies and, and the homework and preparation for those studies. It, it is our life. It's our source. It's food, right? And you would eat every day, a few times a day, I would imagine. And so you need to be in the Word of God. And we have been together as a group. We've been looking at 1 Timothy chapter, uh, the whole book. And today we come to chapter 5. And we're going to look at just a few of the verses in this uh, chapter together. And as I've been doing, and will continue to do, because repetition helps, I think, us to really nail it down, there's a, Paul gave Timothy a charge to ministry. I need you to go to this place, and I, this is what I need you to do when you get there. He gave him a charge to go there to the city of Ephesus. Because there was a church, it was an established church, it was a strong church. Uh, it seems in many ways it was the hub of the world, or at least that portion of the world, for a period of time. And Paul had uh, come to learn there were some things going on there. They were drifting a bit. And Timothy, Paul couldn't go himself, so Timothy would go in his stead. I need you to go there, and as I've been saying, I need you to attain and then maintain order within that congregation there in the city, or all of those congregations there in the city of Ephesus. And as such, these, and these instructions for this young minister, Timothy, Paul charges him uh, with these instructions. One of them was how Timothy should respond to false teaching. I need you to go there. People are teaching false things. Here's some of what they're teaching, and here's how I need you to respond to that. That was some of his instructions. He gave him instructions as to how the church should be led, how it should be governed, what type of people should be in the positions of leadership in the congregation, because certainly that was a problem. The wrong people were in leadership, and they were leading people in a direction that they shouldn't be going. He gave him, last week we saw this, some real practical personal advice as a minister, this is important for you, Timothy, to know this. You're going to do a lot of stuff, but more importantly than that, Timothy, this is who you need to be. And he spent some time looking at those things. Remember in chapter 4 last week, he said, or two weeks ago, he said, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. This is who you need to be. And he gave them a whole bunch of ways in which they can, he can set that example. Now as we come to chapter 5, Paul here, he returns to the work that Timothy will need to be doing. And here, though, it's not, I want you to do this, 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 and this. Here now, it's how I want you to do this, 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 and this. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And so he's going to tell him that this work that he needs to do, it's not that I just, I'm not sending you there just to accomplish things. I need you to go there and accomplish, accomplish those things with a certain spirit about you. Because you're going to be doing as much ministry in how you minister to people than what you minister to people. And so uh, he's going to tell them how to interact with folks. He'll talk about the older men and the younger men, how to interact with the older women and with the younger women. And he likens here the church to a family. He's calling them dads or fathers. He's calling them mothers. He's saying treat the women like sisters and so on and so forth. And he likens them to a family. Throughout the New Testament... There's a whole bunch of different, it's probably seven or eight different metaphors or analogies that the writers will use to describe the church. And they're helpful 
Because when you think of it with this metaphor, this analogy, it adds a little bit of insight. Okay, so he's talking about these kinds of things. And then you use a different metaphor, and you're thinking of those types of things. And so some of the things that Paul has, or that the authors have used to describe it, uh, Peter calls it a holy nation. Another place we, we see the church likened to a kingdom, similar. We see it likened to a priesthood. Jesus likened it to a vine. It's likened in another spot to a temple. The common one we talk about is the body of Christ. The, it's likened to a body. Another one, it's likened to a flock of sheep and so on, or animals there. Here, the metaphor that is used is a family. And I think among other things, what it's trying to communicate are those things that you would find in the normal functioning family, things like intimacy, things like care for one another, an openness. You can really be who you are you know, in your family, and things like love. And those are the things you're going to find in a normal functioning family. Those are the things we should find in a body of believers, an intimacy, a care for one another, uh, a love for one another, and an openness with one another. And Paul is going to break down this whole congregation of people, and he's going to break them down into four groups. Now, there's probably more groups. You know, this person is an older person, but also has, the, there's probably more. But the general, he breaks them down into four groups, the older men, the younger women, excuse me, men, the older women, and the younger women. Look at verse 1. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. And so there's your family structure, mom and dad, brothers and sisters. He begins, he says, do not rebuke an older man. Now that term rebuke is going to carry through to every one of those people groups. And so you could read it, do not rebuke an older man. And when you rebuke a younger man, and when you rebuke an older woman, and so on. So the, you with me? The word rebuke, it carries all the way through here. So it's not just about the older men and how you should rebuke an older man, but it's how he should confront every single one of those different people groups. Now remember, if you've been with us, you know there's a lot of problems going on there. That's why Paul is sending Timothy. Paul would go to deal with them himself, but there's a lot of things that are going on at that church since Paul hadn't been there for three, four, five years. We've learned a few of those things. There were some in the church, you may recall, that had abandoned truth altogether. And with that, they had abandoned godliness. This is what Paul wrote in verse 5 of chapter 1. He said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. That was some of the leaders in the congregation. They had swerved away from that path that Paul had put them on, and they've gone after vain, gone after vain discussions. Well, that's something Timothy's going to have to deal with. He already told him that's what he has to deal with. Somebody's got to get corrected. In chapter 2, Paul said, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, that sounds good, without anger or quarreling. Okay, that's bad. People were angry with one another, quarreling with one another. They had to be dealt with. Somebody has to be corrected. These are some of the things that, Paul, that Timothy would have to address. In verse 19, he talked about those that had shipwrecked their faith. Gone off in this direction, he says there, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, that by them you may wage the good wood for holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. 
they would have to be addressed, and Timothy would be the one to do so. We learned in chapter 2 that there were some of the ladies there in the Ephesian church that had abandoned their proper role and were trying to usurp the function of men. Paul addressed that for Timothy. In chapter 3, and then you'll, we'll see it eventually toward the end of chapter 5, he raises the issue of men that aspired to position of leadership and in some cases were in positions of leadership that shouldn't have been there at all, that didn't have the character to be in those positions. Timothy would have to address that. In chapter 4 and chapter 6, Paul talked about those that were teaching the doctrine of demons. Certainly that needed to be addressed. Some of the widows, we'll look at them today, some of the widows, both older ones and younger ones, were living impure lives, and they would need to be addressed. And it's, so it's pretty clear there's a lot of things that Timothy's going to have to go in and he's going to have to correct. He's going to have to go in and he's going to have to rebuke. We'll use that particular word. And so Paul is giving him advice. When you go, make sure when you approach the, men, the older men, you approach it this way. And when you approach the younger women, you approach it this way. And, and so on and so forth with all four of those um, groups. We do treat different people differently. Now some say, that's not fair. But it's wise. Because different people need to be dealt with differently. And the wise parent, the wise coach, the wise teacher understands that. Paul understood that. And whether Paul read it in a book somewhere, I doubt it, but whether he read that in a book somewhere or it's what he grew to know from his many, many years of experience, he knew that older men needed to be treated differently than younger men and, and younger women from older women and so on and so forth. Jesus himself said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, love is so important and so key in our interactions with one another. According to Jesus there, it's one of the indicators people look like, man, something different about you guys. Now, what many would say, though, is what love means is we never confront one another. What love means is we always look past things and, you know, we're just all hugging and loving and happy and nobody's ever feeling challenged in any particular way. That's not how the New Testament approaches it. We're called, actually, to confront one another and to challenge one another in love, certainly, but love doesn't just look past wrongdoing. Love deals with it and it confronts it. Sin cannot be ignored. Sin needs to be dealt with. And if somebody in your life, in this congregation, or another br brother in the faith, sister in the faith, has confronted you on an issue, and hopefully in a very loving and caring way, you should be grateful for that individual. Because they're trying to take the scripture seriously. And perhaps they didn't do it right. And maybe they came off with a little bit of a tone or something. And maybe you were a little offended. Look past the 95% and receive the five. Receive the correction. It's the wise individual that will receive the correction. And then for those that go and correct and maybe do it the wrong way, well, we, we can talk to you too. And there's an appropriate way to go about that. And you take the plank out of your own eye first and all these other kinds of things. But we do not want to negate or neglect the very important place that correction or rebuke must have in one another's lives. Paul said this, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you have no idea what that's talking about, just that little bit of yeast in the dough, just a teeny little bit, you put it in there, it's going to spread through the whole thing. 
And it's the same idea with sin. And if we look past it and we ignore it and we don't pay attention to it and someone doesn't lovingly come to us and say, hey, look, I'm concerned about this. That has the ability to spread like a cancer. And so Paul instructs our friend Timothy here in this regard. Jesus, he said this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then go and tell it to the church. The idea there is the church leadership. And if he refuses to listen even to the church leadership, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The idea is, man, this guy, I'm not even sure he's a brother. And then how do you approach a brother? Well, you try to, or a non-brother, you try and win them to the faith. But you don't fellowship. You're not in this, like, everything is great, it's fine, you do what you want to do, or whatever. No, you've brought one, you've brought a second in humility, in love, you've come, you've uh, confronted, you've brought the leadership into this, and the person refuses to listen. And so all of us as believers are called to have those uncomfortable conversations from time to time with other believers. Now, I'm not saying that we're on the lookout and we're trying to catch everything. Yeah, I saw that look you made there, and yeah, I heard that thing you said, or whatever. Sometimes people just mess up, and they make a mistake, and they already know that it's wrong, and they're dealing with it. They don't need you coming alongside and saying, I just want you to know I caught you, or whatever. That's not the point of it. The point is to get them to see that was wrong. If they already see that was wrong, then everything is already accomplished. Make sense? And so we're not running around trying to catch everyone. That's not a fun way to live life, is it? No. No, it's not. So all of us as believers are called to engage in loving and humble confrontation of one another. But if, again, if you look at that passage involving Jesus there, that was Matthew 18, by the way. If you look at that, if one person, nothing happens, and then a second, nothing happens, eventually it's going to make its way to the leadership which is what Timothy is. So Timothy is going to find himself in circumstances where he's dealing with older men and younger men and older women and younger women, both as a believer and as a leader of the believers. And so it's very important that Paul would give him instructions as to how he should approach that. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, some of the versions that I suspect some of us in this room are reading will translate older man there as an elder. So it'll say, do not rebuke an elder. And we know what an elder is. However, in the context of 1 Timothy, that might cause us to think of the position of an elder in the church. And so that, I think it's a little bit of an unfortunate circumstance in our language. I think older man fits better because that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about a leader in the congregation. He's just talking about a gentleman that is older in the congregation. That's who Paul here has in mind. Now, remember, Timothy would be in the category of a younger man in the congregation. That's the word that was used of him. Don't let anyone look down upon you because of your youth. And that would be anyone 30, 35, maybe up close to 40 years of age. And in the context, then, the older man that Timothy should treat as a father would be those that are in their 60s or their 70s or maybe even into their 80s, the age 
probably of what Timothy's dad would have been if he was still alive. I don't know if he was or he wasn't. But that's these people that Paul has in mind that he's going to be speaking up to, those older individuals. Now, that's a piece of cake when you say, so how are the grandkids? You know, and you're having these fun little conversations about yesteryear. Oh, when I was a kid, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, and you, that's fun. Everything is great there. This is easy conversations. It gets a little bit more difficult when Timothy says, hey, could I talk to you, Mr. Jones? Or Bob, whatever you want to call the guy. No offense, Bob. <laughs> the interaction becomes a little more difficulty, difficult when young Timothy has to confront older Tom. Right? You with me? So Paul says to him, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Old age doesn't automatically shield someone from folly or sin or mistakes. Old people sin just like young people sin. Uh-huh, this guy knows, <laughs> and, he, and he's looking at one of you older people. Paul's instructions then to Timothy in those in instances is that he is to approach those interactions with those older men delicately. He says, do not rebuke an older man. Now, that appears on first surface here, that appears as if Paul is instructing Timothy that he's never allowed to correct an older man. It says very clearly, do not rebuke an older man. In actuality, that is not what Paul is saying. The typical word for rebuke, it appears about 17 times in the New Testament, translated into English, rebuke, typically. It's a word that means to correct, okay? And I've been saying that here. The word Paul uses here is a word in the New Testament it appears only once in the New Testament here. And it's a word which, which means to strike at or attack. Very big difference, isn't there? Strike at or attack or correct. Timothy was called to correct. What he was called not to do was to strike at or attack. He was told not to attack these older men with his words, but to rather treat them with respect the respect that their older age has earned, if you will, and deserves. And so I think the point here is, Timothy, you're going to be tempted as a young man and a minister to have a little bit of a power play when you come into contact with some other people. And you may be very naturally intimidated because there's some older people in the congregation, they know so much more than me, they've been around so much longer, they've done so many more things, and you're going to be tempted to flex your ministerial muscles a little bit. Timothy, don't do it. You'll be tempted to say, well, I'm going to show these old bucks who's in charge around here. Timothy, that's a mistake. I like the way William McDonald said it, commentator I like. He said, being younger and perhaps more aggressive, Timothy might be tempted to become impatient and resentful with some of the older men. It would be improper for him as a younger man to assault such a person with verbal blows to put, him, put them in their place. And so the older person still might need to be corrected, but according to Paul, the manner of that correction, it needs to be marked by deference and respect, just like a son would correct his father. There's a level of respect that is even in the process of correcting someone for a mistake that they have made or they are making. What I appreciate as Paul goes on, Paul says, don't do this. Okay, what should I do? 
Well, you have to figure that out yourself. Oh, that stinks. You know, so he tells him what he should do. So he tells him not just what he should not do, but what he should do. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Some of our versions use the word exhort. It's the same idea. Exhort, uh, exhortation is encouragement to do what needs to be done, the right thing. Encouragement to do what needs to be done. And exhortation has with it a manner of encouraging that a coach might use because they want their athlete to, to do their very best, to be their very best, to accomplish their very best. And so this person's going to come alongside and encourage them. You can do this. This is what needs to be done. That's exhortation here. And so he says, don't rebuke them. Don't uh, verbally assault them but rather come and exhort them. And the reality is, older folks, they may have a difficult time receiving from this younger folk. And the younger guy might want to flex his muscles with the older guy. Both of them are like, look, both of you got to get your attitudes right here as you approach this. But the reality is, some older folks might say, I'm not listening to this young kid. You're not my pastor. My pastor, he was here for 40 years, you know, and now he's not around anymore. So I'm not listening to you. Or whatever, that's a mistake on that person's part. But the minister needs to know that. This young person needs to know that. And what do you want to do? Do you want to just establish who's in charge? Or do you want to see this person have change in their life? What's your goal here? Well, my goal is when we walk out of that meeting, he'll know who's in charge. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Pretty soon you're not going to have any old people in your congregation because they're not going to appreciate the way you treat them. If Timothy truly wants change in this man's life, this older man's life, he will approach it very carefully and wisely. He'll come alongside and he'll exhort and he'll encourage. That's Paul's, uh, if you will, exhortation or commandment to Timothy there. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now he goes on and he speaks to the younger men. And he says, younger men as brothers. Now remember the word rebuke and the concept of rebuke, it carries over to every one of these categories. So we could read this uh, as, and rebuke younger men as brothers. So Paul, he turns his attention from the older men now to the younger men. And remember, Timothy, we learned he was a younger man. So now Timothy is getting into that dynamic where he's speaking with his contemporaries, and that can bring all kinds of problems with it as well. Oh, what do you think? You're better than me now? You know, you're a big, powerful minister. You know, we grew up in Sunday school together. Uh, and all this kind of stuff. That's my annoying person voice. Uh, the best I can do. Paul says they should be treated as brothers. You're not in, you're not in charge. Uh, you are in charge, but not, you don't have to prove it. Again, you don't have to flex your muscles. You don't have to show everyone who you are. Treat them as your brothers. Treat them as your friends. Treat them as your partners in the work of the ministry. But you're not going into those settings saying, look, everyone, ooh, careful. Look, everyone, I know we grew up together, but now I'm in charge and things are going to be different around here. No, you go in there in humility. You confront in love. There's no air of superiority. There's no appearance of self-exaltation. I'm better than you. There's no domineering attitude. You're one brother talking to another brother and trying to help them along in the journey. And you're seeing something and you want to challenge them and call them out on that so that they'll put it aside and they'll move on. 
He says, the younger men as brothers. Then he goes to the moms of the congregation. And we love the moms of the congregation. I have had a number of you ladies in the church that have really been my spiritual mom. And I appreciate you guys. I love you guys. And I'm thankful for that. And the important place, my mom, my real mom, she's dead, but oh, um, she passed away. But she was the most encouraging person, maybe my wife, but I think my mom more, in my life. <laughs> I could do anything. And she was convinced I was going to be a success at whatever I did. And then my dad is a little more realistic. You're going to be able to make money on that or whatever. You know, can you make a living on that because you're not living here? But my mom, that's what moms are supposed to be. And they do other things too, yes. But she was just that incredible encouragement. And I've had spiritual moms in this church that have been that in my, and not just this church, other uh, congregations I've been a part of that have been that in my life. And it's such an important place uh, in our lives. Now, that being said, moms aren't perfect. Spiritual moms aren't perfect, and they too. There may be something where they need to be corrected uh, as well. And so Paul says there, he says, rebuke older women as mothers. And so here in the car, ladies, I'll let you decide whether you're in this category or not. I'm not going to point out who's the older women here. I'll let you make that decision. And I'll say this, if my eyes catch your eyes during this conversation, it's purely by accident. Right, I'm not calling anybody an older woman here in this church. You, you call yourself that. But Paul instructs Timothy that the older women that he would interact with needed to be treated as he would treat his mom, with respect, with honor that comes with their age. They needed to be treated with and need to be with dignity and with love. All of those are their due, as it would be your mom's due in your life here. And Paul says, as you interact with them, make sure you do so in that manner. And then he goes to the, to the younger women. Again, the re word rebuke carries over. So essentially it says, rebuke younger women as sisters. And in the same way, then, he's not going to flex his muscles with his contemporary male friends. Neither should he with these female counterparts. It's not setting it up. Look at the important person I am. And all that goes with that. Notice how he adds uh, younger women as sisters in all purity. How important that is. Purity was to characterize all of his dealings with the younger women of the congregation. Now, how many, how many ministers have gotten themselves in trouble? Because they didn't approach their relationship with the younger women of the congregation in purity. And so he says, all of your relationships with the young women, and that includes outside of the church too. It's not just, well, outside I can be crazy. You know, it's every young woman that you come into contact with. You need to approach it with purity. But we're talking about in this congregation right now, he says that the young women should be treated as sisters. That Timothy, as any godly man, by the way, but certainly Timothy as he's leading, he was to make certain that his conduct towards younger women was always pure and above reproach. And so not only was he to avoid, you know, the obvious actions, but he also would need to take great care to steer clear of acts of indiscretion that might have the appearance of evil. He wasn't to be flirtatious with the ladies of the church, the younger ladies of the church, or provocative or flirting or handsy with them. You know, just putting a hand in this kind of thing. I don't know what I was doing, but <laughs> you get it. <laughs> He wasn't to use these like 
little double entendres that send sort of this little message with a little smirk or something like that. He was to approach her as he would his sister. And, and, and you think of it as his younger sister. He was to love her. He was to care for her. He was to be kind to her. He was to be protective of her. All of those things, Paul says, this is how you need to deal with the younger women of the church. And so as Paul knew, he probably learned this through many, many years of ministry, and Timothy either knew it or was about to discover it, it's a necessary part of ministry to help people as they deal with the sanctifying process of walking with Jesus. And sometimes people might need to be corrected. And here Paul's point is in e that each of those groups have to be treated in the proper way. A distinction, maybe, between the older men and the younger women and so on, but properly. Paul says, older men with respect, older women with devotion, his contemporaries as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Well, Paul goes on, and many of those older women are going to be widows, no doubt. And so he transitions now, and this is going to go all the way down to verse 16. So verse 3 to 16, he's going to take up the subject of widows. Now, that's a lot of verses. That's almost 14, or it is, 14 verses that Paul uses in this passage as he's giving Timothy instruction as to how to run the church that he devotes to this issue of widows in the congregation. That, at the very least, should serve as an indicator that this is an important subject in the mind and the heart of God, is how many verses are devoted to it. You remember in the Gospel of Mark, we're provided of an account, and Mark has 16 chapters. This is Mark chapter 12, so it's coming toward the end of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus goes to the temple, and if you remember, the temple had a building structure proper, but then it had courtyards all around it, where, which was actually considered part of the temple too. And in the center of that, or as you come in the, the door there, there was, or the gate, there was an offering box that was there. It was kind of in the center of the courtyard. And so people would come in and they'd drop their little offering there into the box, and then they'd go and do whatever it is they were going to do at the temple. And one time we're told in Mark 12 that Jesus set himself up kind of off on the side, and he just watched as people interact with that offering box. And one thing he noticed is that those that were rich and wealthy, not, maybe not everyone, but certainly a good number of them, that they would come and they'd make a large show over the big sum of money that they were putting into this temple box, drawing all sorts of attention to themselves. I am now putting in my offering, you know, this kind of thing. And wow, that's such a big check, you know, and this kind of thing. And they'd be all impressed by it. But then Jesus draws our attention to a little poor widow lady. I don't know if she's little. I, I say she's little, but a poor widow lady. This is what it reads in verse 42. It says, Now he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Wow. I wonder how much money she put in. And she was putting in more than those that put in large sums of money. Well, look back at verse 42. It says, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which add up to a penny. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 44. It says, they contributed, the wealthy, out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So all that she had to live on was a penny. 
So this was a poor woman. And I bring it up here because the account provides us with some insight into the status of widows in the first century Jewish culture, particularly those widows that had no family as well to support them. They were usually poor. They were often destitute. They typically had no means of earning an income or a living. There were many Jews that actually barred women from working outside of the home at all. And so it's not like she can just go get a job or something like that. And so as a result of that being kind of the norm, many of the local synagogues, or if not all of them, felt the obligation that they had to relieve the plight of these women that found themselves in those circumstances. All the way back to the uh, opening of our Bibles, the writing there of Moses, we see a recurring theme of God's special care for widows. And it's not so, and you can, you read the verses, you'll find them. They're all, as you just make your way through the Old Testament. And so it's not surprising that the first ministry, official ministry that we see develop in the early church, it's in the book of Acts, it's Acts chapter 6, is a ministry that involved the care of widows. You remember, remember there, they were distributing food to the widows and a discrepancy. There were the Hebrew widows and there were the Greek widows. And how come all of you Hebrew men that are passing out the food are giving more to them and not enough to us? This isn't fair. And it became an issue. And it had to be dealt with. But don't miss the fact that they were providing for these widows. There was a need, a special need that needed to be met. And we see it even in the very, very early stages of the church. Again, I think you make your way through the scripture, you see that God has always designed that women are to be the special objects of care in a family and in the larger community. And they are to be under the umbrella of male protection, male provision, male authority, and male direction. And one group of women that God takes a very special interest in are those women who have lost that protective covering of their husbands. They are widows. And so as Paul continues here to present Timothy with this charge to ministry, this is all the stuff I need you to do when you get there, one of the areas that he spends a good deal of time on is the ministry of the church toward the widows of the congregation. And so he says in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Now just glance down to verse 7 where he says, uh, and if you command these things, so in reality, he's commanding Timothy as the leader of that church, the pastor of that church, that that church should be honoring widows that are truly widows. Now, I'm not sure honor is the most effective word uh, in our English language to communicate what it is that Paul's trying to say here. Because we think of honor and like, make sure you're respectful and all that stuff. But rather, what Paul has in mind here as how the church should treat the women is with respect and all those things, but the word that is used here for honor also indicates the thought of financial help. This is why there's some English versions, most use the word honor, but there's some English versions that you might be reading that use the word support instead, because that's, that's what Paul has in mind. It's an honor that goes beyond that to financial support as well. And so Paul is saying here that those that are truly widows in your congregation need to be financially supported by the congregation. But he uses this phrase here, those that are true widows. 
Now, at the same time, the church must be careful not to waste its valuable and limited resources on those who aren't truly in need. And so not just everyone that doesn't have a husband because they are a widow is necessarily to receive a financial gift, if you will, from the congregation. Paul says those that are true widows are to receive that. And so the church needs to be careful. Sadly, and those in the church office can attest to this, we take calls all the time, and I'm sure every church does, proving that there are people that will look to milk local churches to get funds from local churches. And so they'll call and they'll say, do you have a benevolent fund? Yeah, who, who am I talking to? Yeah, well, you know, how, and why did you choose to call us? Well, you know, you're a church kind of thing. And so we don't just give out money. Who wants money? Come on, come get money. We don't have a money-making machine in the back where we just pass it out. And so we have to have wisdom. And we have to pray about these things. And we have to kind of have some, I, what I like to have is sort of this kind of this system that, you know, we kind of run through and we, we ask and then we pray with it as well. And so Paul, as he talks here, in order to deal with that, he uses this phrase here about those that are truly widows. Now, in the English language, a widow is a person whose husband has died. A person, they could be 20 years old, five years old, they could be 55 years old. If their husband has died, then they are a widow. Now, if that was Paul's meaning, then any woman whose husband had died would qualify as a true widow. However, in the original language, the Greek word includes that meaning, but it's not limited to that meaning. Meaning. So we're not just talking about a woman whose husband has died here. In the original, the word means one having suffered loss or who has been left alone. And so in our thinking, oh, because their husband died, but not necessarily. The word never really delves into specifically how the woman was left alone. It just merely describes that she is left alone. And so in actuality, the meaning of the word, it's broad enough to encompass encompass not only those who have lost their husbands through death, but I think by way of application, we could also say things like desertion or divorce or even something like imprisonment. The husband's been in prison and now this woman is left alone. The responsibility of the church then extends to all qualifying who have lost their husband in some way. A church's devotion to Christ can be seen in how they treat those without any resources. Because it's, it's very pure. I'm not getting anything back by doing this. It's not like I go help you and then you make a big offering. They don't have anything to give. It's not like I help you in this and then others are going to flock or whatever. That's not the whole purpose of it. There's nothing that that person can give back. And when a church is devoted to lovingly care for those individuals, it's a picture of our service to Christ and his service, more importantly, to us. It's a witness of Christ-likeness. And so Paul is going to now take some time to discuss this through the remainder or half of this chapter. He'll talk about, in verses 3 through 8, the duty of supporting widows. He'll then instruct Timothy in regard to those that he should consider as true widows. And then he ends with an interesting statement to a believing widow that has means and what her responsibility should be. And we're not going to delve into all of this today. We'll pick up next time. But I want to read the whole section. Does that sound good? We'll read down to verse 16. 
It says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Verse 7, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having, excuse me, a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith, or pledge, as some versions say. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And so, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the passage opens with truly widows. It closes with truly widows. A point then, the church cannot indiscriminately support every single widow that asks for assistance. And so Paul doesn't just say, figure it out. He gives criteria. Criteria to Timothy to determine those widows they should support and those widows that they should not. Now, he's going to make four classifications of widows. And the first is those that are truly widows. Okay, that's the first one. The second group are people that have lost their husband, but they have children and grandchildren. That's down in verse 4. The third group is all the way down in verse 11. That's the younger woman that lost her husband. And then the final group is actually in verses 5 and 6, before where the other one was. And that are those widows that are worldly, or self-indulgent is the term that he uses there. And so we'll talk about each of them. Again, not all of them today, but let's start with the first one. The first group is those that are truly widows. Paul begins explaining what that is by explaining what they are not, which leads into the second category here. He says, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, I'll paraphrase, provide for her needs. And so again, Paul's not just talking about the person that lost their husband, but rather those that are, and this is what the meaning is, truly alone. And a woman who has children and grandchildren is not truly alone. She's a widow in one sense of the word, but not in the sense of the word that Paul has in mind when he says that these women should be honored and financially supported because she is not truly alone. She has children and grandchildren that can step up and do that. Some of your versions might use the word nephews um, there uh, as well. Um, so they can help too. 
uh, everybody can be involved. So one of the characteristics then of a widow indeed, truly a widow, is they, have they don't have children or grandchildren. So the simple point is if a widow has relatives, those relatives should be the ones caring for her so that the church can use its limited resources on those that have nobody else that can care for them. It's the family that has the primary responsibility for its own widow. And again, remember, this was a time, no social security, no, my husband worked 40 years and now we have a nice pension, none of that kind of stuff here. It was just a lady that had nothing. Um, we live in a day, we do have things like pensions and social securities. I think we run the mistake, the government should take care of it. And we've given them a lot of money, they should. But it's our responsibility to take care of our own families. And too many times we see that being pushed off because it, it's going to be a hassle. Or I got plans for my money, not helping grandma, all this kind of stuff. That's a mistake. And so Paul says, look, it's the family. Now notice, he goes on to say, failure to require the children and grandchildren to care for their mom or their grandmom here is detrimental to the growth of the children and the grandchildren. And so if the church jumps in, they're actually hurting the children and the grandchildren from learning the valuable lesson that God has for them in caring for their parents. I'm reminded of the resource, When Helping Hurts, which is a great resource I recommend every one of us read, because there are times where, out of the best of intentions, you can be trying to help people, and maybe temporarily you are, but you're ultimately hurting those individuals. Well, that's what Paul is getting to here. And so he says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. And if the church intervenes, they're hindering those young people from being, and I, I'm in that category, so I'm not a young person, I guess. But anyway, they're, they're hindering the child and grandchild from doing what it is they need to do. Paul says, let them first learn. That word first there, it, it's a word which means, you know what first means, but here it means first in time or priority. And that speaks to learning to sacrifice our wants, our desires, and even our needs in order to care for the needs of our elderly mother or grandmother. And in our head, that's an easy thing to learn, isn't it? Yeah, sure, okay, I got it. In my head, it's a little harder to learn in my heart. It's a little harder to learn in my actions. Oh, I have plans. I want to go here. I want to do this. I want to make a lot of money. I want to have, you know, this kind of a home or whatever. Well, if you prioritize your mother or your grandmother first, some of those things may need to put, be put to the side. Never get accomplished or at least not accomplished until later on. Paul says, Timothy, the church shouldn't be taking on the responsibility that is not theirs. Let the, the family members fulfill this first. Now, he's going to come back to that in verse 8, so I'll come back to that in verse 8, but I'll raise this scenario. What if there is a widow who has children and grandchildren, and those kids and grandkids have essentially completely abandoned her? Or they look for the card to come every Christmas with the check in it, but that's you know the extent of their relationship. And so these schmoes, I'll call them that, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And here's this lady, she's the one struggling along here, having a difficult time getting by. Are we as the church then supposed to say, well, she's got children and grandchildren, it's up to them. 
there comes a point in time where it becomes obvious, yeah, she's got them, but they're not doing what they need to be doing, and the church may need to step in. Or the church, the people of the church may need to step in and fulfill that role that those kids and grandkids just won't fulfill. And she's suffering in the whole process. Are you with me on that? All right, so we don't want to be like so like, well, but it says. Yeah, but look at the context. Look at what it's trying to say, what it is trying to say with its word there. Somebody needs to step in and care for her. But the first responsibility is for the children and the grandchildren. A true widow, among other qualifications, is one who is truly alone and has no other means of support. And those are the ones that Paul instructs Timothy need to be honored. He's going to go on. He's going to give some more qualifications. But that is at least one of the qualifications that they need to meet, the true widow. So we've looked at the two categories of widow, the true widow, and we'll keep talking about it, and then the widow that has others in her life that can care for her, in this case, children and grandchildren. When we come back together, we'll pick up for the next two categories. How's that sound? You with me? Who's excited to come back next week? Some of the widows are. I am. <laughs> All right. Make sure they know. All right. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I think um, having been involved in ministry for a little while now, this is just so incredibly practical and helpful. And maybe for some of us sitting here, it's just sort of a head knowledge or whatever, but for me, just looking at this, like, wow, Lord, you have not left us alone. You've given us your word. You provided us with instruction. And then on top of that, we have your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us as we study your word. But Lord, for every one of us here in the congregation, there are ways of application here of what we consider today, how we are to interact with others, or how we're to be careful in our interaction with others how we're to step up and to put away our own desires and needs to care for another, Lord. Such good and important stuff. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we know you're our teacher ultimately. And so we pray you administer points of application to each one of us. Lord, that the living word would enter in to our lives, that it would bear fruit, and that that fruit would be glory. Uh, honoring and bring you glory. That's what we are created for. That's what we want to do as your new, uh, new cre creations in Christ. And so we pray through the application of your word that we might do that exact thing. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.